Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. Uh, today, we're joined by Mary Harrington from the UK, who wrote an article for us a couple weeks back about postmodernism and post-structuralism and how her experience with that um, worked out going through college, getting the getting sort of an early version of the sort of full postmodern experience that a lot of people are experiencing these days in college and and being very uh, struck by it, having it having it have a large impact on her life and then kind of gradually working her way out of that into uh, what she regards to be a more healthy perspective. And so I wanted to bring her on and expand on these topics, kind of go through her story and talk about how as a society and as individuals, we should be dealing with a lot of these insights that have been driving the kind of postmodern philosophical movement. So Mary, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me on. So let's let's start with um, reiterating your story. I mean, this was all in the article, but we can kind of uh, go over it for for those who are just listening now. Sure. Well, so I went up to university in 1998, so a little while ago now. I would say that um, I I studied English literature at Oxford University, and prior to uh, attending university, I'd say I had a fairly classical education. I mean, it was slightly unusual because I went to a Steiner Waldorf school, but it was broadly you know, broadly classical in the sense of teaching about the sort of continuity and, if you like, a sort of narrativity of Western civilization. You know, we we learned about ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and ancient Rome and and kind of in sequence. And there was was a clear implication in the sequencing of what we learned that there was a a narrative to it, that there was... um, You could sort of infer from it that that it was a history of something that was going somewhere, you know, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't completely clear where that where that direct final destination might be, but there was a sense of uh, directionality and of narrative. Um, so imagine my shock when I got to university and encountered post-structuralism in my first year as an English literature undergraduate, and discovered that um, from from within this worldview that that entire sense of teleology had been, as it were, dismantled. I mean, there are there are hints of it in some of the literary criticism that precedes, you know, Derrida and Saussure and so on, there are hints that the whole edifice is coming apart already in T.S. Eliot. I mean, you only have to look at the wasteland to see, mm-hmm. you know, the heap of broken images. You know, it's it's all it's all there and about to implode. But even even in the wasteland, there's this sense of um, a massive kind of elusive tapestry that Eliot still feels confident in referencing, even though um, he's he, he's he's addressing it as though it's slightly beyond his grasp all of the time and there's always this sense that the canon is just too big to get your head around anymore but mm-hmm. there's but there's still this sense that it's there and that it is a canon and that it's it has some kind of substance to it and some kind of coherence even if it feels as though it's coming apart in his hands and then of course you look at you look at the four quartets and you know there's a sense of something he's sort of progressing towards the possibility of there still being something transcendent but then you know you, but then when it gets to the post structuralists in the 1960s and thereon it just all goes completely 
it just all completely falls apart because they've right. got this critique of of narrative and teleology, which basically says that you know even even the even positing some kind of a narrative is essentially just a self serving act of power. And I mean, I'm, I'm I'm conscious, of course, that it's been a while since I read this stuff. There's been more work done since, and actually, when you look at the post structuralists themselves, a lot of them are considerably more nuanced than this. But as right. an undergraduate, this was my takeaway. Can we expand on on kind of what were these insights that they were grappling with the post post-structuralists and so on how did they come to this kind of position and what are the what are the takeaways there that that we actually have to take seriously like i think there are uh, there is something to that right this this very perspectival approach to grand narratives absolutely i mean i think the what what really kind of hit me like a freight train when i got to university was this sense i mean the the sort of structuralist and post structuralist argument very crudely summarized is that because that because there's a separation between the sign i e a word and what it signifies um Therefore, um, signs can only really be defined in relation to other signs. So the structuralists didn't; they they were they were just interested in um, exp- in exploring and investigating and uncovering um, the the world of signs, um, the discipline of semiotics, they called it. Um, um, but the post-structuralists kind of problematized that whole approach because they 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 said, well, you know, if if sign and signified are not the same thing then signs can only be defined in relation to other signs. And in, from that it follows that there's, no, there's nothing really substantial that we can ground meaning in at all. And therefore, you know, they, well, I mean, what I took away from it, and I'm not, I'm not going to anchor this in any one theorist, but you know, what, I, what I came away from, from this study were, with was a sense that uh, what, we, what we were looking at was, was a world in which there was, there was no substantial meaning and it was all just an act of power. It was all just mm-hmm. human culture operating on and within um, a realm of the real, which was so um, ungraspable in its pre, pre-signified state that there's, there's nothing really to hold on to at all and it was all just power. Right. So, so when you're looking around at the world and kind of like grounding, grounding your words, you know, like let's say the word red, right? I see some red in front of me or, or someone points at some red and says red. And I kind of, there, there is a grounding there that is not merely, you know, grounding only in other signifiers, right? There is the perceptual experience as well. And so... As I understand it, at least within some of the sort of contemporary discussions which have emerged out of um, mm-hmm. This this sort of post structuralist theory. There are people who question whether even that's the case. You know, this is a this is a rabbit hole. I really don't want to go down. But but for example, the there are people who who question the the, the notion that biological sex ob- exists in any meaningful objective sense, or whether yeah. in fact we didn't just construct it as a culture. And I mean, I'm going to leave I'm going to leave that question to one side. But I think there are you know the, well, the this... question of you know to what extent observable reality is is itself as a concept even a cultural construct is now. Is, is not yeah. on the table. Yeah, well, I think I think the idea of observable reality absolutely is is a con, like a cultural construct. However, it's also a hypothesis, right? It's like speaking epistemically, it's it's a hypothesis about how the world works, uh, or about like at least how the structure of our perceptions works, and it seems to hold up fairly well. And and I think like you know I I'll I'll definitely say that yes there's there's constructed elements to all of this including you know our perception of color and so on. However, there is also this reality that we do seem to be able to ground it in. Of course, that's the the reality that we're grounding it in is is not this uninterpreted sense data. It's 
it's very much like before it even reaches your brain, it's going through many layers of conceptualization that obviously you're, you're learning from others or you're making up uh, sort of yourself. And so I think that's there's definitely something to that, that, that there's like quite a bit of, of learned conceptualization in our perception of reality that isn't just you know, reality presenting itself to us and, and that, that those concepts, you know, the, the landscape of concepts available to us and, and that we receive from society are very much subject to power relations and, and, you know, construction by power centers and, and, you know, to posit one of these concepts is an action on, uh, on the social fabric and, and is therefore an act of power. So I think that's like, that's like the, the takeaway that I take from this stuff of, of like how, where where I take it seriously, right? It's like there is this sense in which, yes, like reality is a bit more slippery than than we had imagined conceptually. And there is this like definite social and power relations aspect to our perceptions and, and our thoughts and, and how we conceptualize the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from, from where I'm sitting now talking to you, you know, as a, a reasonably functioning adult in middle age now I 100% agree with everything that you've just said um, from where I was 20 odd years ago having met this stuff for the first time um, it all it just seemed it the the impact on reality just seemed a whole lot more terminal than that it felt as though it was impossible to say anything without what I said being overdetermined in some intrusive way by pre-existing power relations and also that you know in some sense just by making interventions myself I was I was in, in in some way kind of doing violence on other people's personal realities now I freely admit I was I was kind of I was kind of loopy at that point anyway for unrelated reasons so I probably took it a lot more seriously than you know slightly right. more grounded type might have done um but I think the reason I the, the reason I wrote the the blog post which you guys picked up and asked me to expand into a slightly more theorized article, the reason I wrote that was because I've since since sort of coming to terms with all of this stuff and finding an accommodation which works a bit better than my my feelings at that time, um, I've observed what what gets called the campus wars uh, taking place in contemporary universities, particularly in the English speaking world, and what right. I look at. Um, it just looks to me like a mass version of what I was going through. I mean, I, I can't, I can't know what's going on inside other people's minds, and you know, inside a cultural terrain which is, you know, in in, in a lot of ways unfamiliar to me now. But but I'm, but I suppose I started thinking about it and trying to write it out because I was thinking, you know, if actually what I was going through at the time was horrible. It was really, right. really bad place to be. It was a really dark place to be and a really destructive place to be. And it took me a long time to find my way out of it. And if that's actually where most of our young people are at the moment, then that's a serious problem. And that's not something we should be addressing. Any of us should be addressing either by mocking it or by dismissing it as something which is just going to go away again. Because there's a kind of, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's some kind of a mass trauma going on there. People are really suffering. People are really distressed. And I think yeah. that's something we need to take seriously. Um, you know whether you're on the right or the left or somewhere else altogether <laughs> but right. I think it needs to be taken seriously and approached with compassion and you know and an effort to understand what it's like emotionally and not just intellectually yeah and and so like in terms of what that phenomenon feels like I guess I guess you were basically thrown into a new ontology like a totally different ontology of how you know your, your kind of moral narrative and your your narrative of yourself being in society, like how that's constructed, you know, you had this kind of fairly objective narrativized 
uh, teleological viewpoint that you've picked up through the classics, and then you're thrown into this totally different perspectival, deconstructing, post-structuralist worldview, and and you haven't you hadn't worked out how to ground everything that you rely on in that new ontology. And you hadn't worked out how to like exist within that way of being. And I think, I think it's like, that's, that's sort of maybe an artifact of its newness. Like it, we're thrown into this new set of on this new set of insights, this new paradigm, really, it's a new like epistemological paradigm. And, and it is in fact, like it, it is sort of an advance in, in some important way on the previous paradigms, it's more wise about certain things, about certain ways the world works. However, we have not learned yet, or we had not, I, I, I guess at your time, learned to live with this new paradigm. And so it, it's sort of a very traumatic event being thrown out of your kind of native paradigm into this new paradigm. And then, but I guess over time, um, you know, you as as like a relatively bright intellectual and and, and just as like a human being growing through their life, you kind of learn to, to resituate yourself in this new paradigm and learn how to reground your meaning and so on. I think that's accurate. I mean, the, the critical change for me, just backing up a bit, I think the, the thing which disturbed me most profoundly, and again, this is probably, this is probably partly about my own story and just where I was and, you know, my own biographical details but what disturbed me most deeply about the sort of post-structuralist um the, the message i received from post-structuralism was this idea that in a sense there was no there was no meaningful way of encountering the other in any sort of a, a authentic sense that in a right. sense we were there was there was only really the operations of my power on you and your power on me and in a sense you know we were we were just engaged in this sort of semiotic contest for you know who's whose take, whose reality was going to prevail. And that, you know, sometimes that could be more or less hostile, but in a sense it was always hostile. It was like a it was like a sort of, you know, on the on the level of signification, a constant war against war of all against all. You know, mm-hmm. and not just of individuals against one another, but also of the, you know, the the pre existing sort of overdetermined larger structures of meaning, you know, that that are implicit in in design artifacts such as, you know, architecture and see the built environment. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, even even something like a canal, um, sort of hit me, hit me as a kind of a, as an intervention in semiotic and by extension in my psychic space. Um, to you know, so it it was an experience like being constantly attacked and constantly invaded by by the the sort of the 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 systems of power and systems of thought and systems of meaning which were just you know had accumulated over time and were constantly in motion relative to one another and to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just felt overwhelmed by by the sort of enormity of it all, uh, but also, but but particularly of this you know the, the, this sense of impersonal, impersonal is like a kind of impersonal aggression was how it felt. I mean it's it's a long time ago and mm-hmm. it, all, it sounds completely insane trying to put it put it into words from the vantage point of a sort of relatively functioning adult life now. But that was what it felt like. Um, and and I, I look at I look at these young people who who say with complete sincerity that some that uh, a university administrator who refuses to validate their identity is literally obliterating them. And you know, on the face of it, that just looks completely nuts. Just objectively, you are not, you have not just been erased. You're still here. You know, you're you're right up in right. my face. In fact, 
Um, you know, you've, you've, I, I, in no in no meaningful sense have you been obliterated. But that's, but that's, but, but I look at them and I think they really believe this. And and but I was thinking, you know, actually from the point of view of how it felt to be me, um, you know, coming across this this sort of you know radical decentering of the objective uh, analytical individual and its right. replacement with this kind of you know massive sort of systemic um, mesh of meanings. Um, you know, actually being uh, having your your perspective invalidated by the other uh, really did feel like a, a, a hostile attack and a kind of erasure. Um, so I guess you know, just kind of fast forward to having having kind of set that concept rather hopefully not too great length. Um, the, the the biggest transformation for me was going back to school in my late twenties for I, I, about five years part time, where I trained as a psychotherapist. Um, and I think what the the big you know the kind of aha moment for me was studying contemporary psychoanalysis, where the same decentering of the subject has taken place um, as mm-hmm. it has you know in a whole bunch of other disciplines and intellect strands of intellectual thought. I mean, people aren't really so hard on Freud these days anymore at all. Um, but but what's what's really significant is that you know the kind of the the classical analyst who sits there detached and remote and analytical and is 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 seen as being able to be in a sense objective. That's gone. Um, the psychoanalysis doesn't work. It doesn't think of itself like that at all anymore. And instead, right. um, they well, intersubject intersubjective psychoanalysis comes much more from the perspective that um, the the therapeutic encounter is co-created between the analyst and the and the client and that in in that relational space um, is always present the analysts unconscious as well as the as well as the clients and to a degree you just have to live with that Um, but but um, you know, once you you accept the sort of lurking presence of your own unconscious, you know, you you in no way presume that you've you've vanquished any of that bullshit because you just let's face it, you just haven't because nobody mm-hmm. does. Um, but but along with that, you know, there, there comes this possibility of um, of a genuine encounter, and which will often come at the moment when you least expect it. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and that that just really it, it was an incredibly healing. Uh, process for me studying this you do a lot of personal work as well but it it just became clear to me that this sense of you know this sense of this sense of loss that I experienced um, the possibility of ever being able to engage truthfully with another person you know I didn't have to feel bereaved I didn't have to be deprived of that because actually it was still possible to encounter the other you just right. had to do it from this from this decentered space where you accept that you know you're there in the mess and there's no place to stand outside it and I think yeah. just that that very experiential um you know re re re-exploration of this of the decentered subject you know at a much more intimate level you know the sort of I thou encounter of the consulting room um and the and the the genuine experience of transformation you know both as a client in my own therapy but also as a therapist you know working working with sometimes quite uh, distressed and traumatized clients just left me with with a takeaway that was that actually you know the decentering of the subject you know it doesn't follow from that that we've 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 abandoned any possibility of 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 human of encounter with another person and from that just expands outwards the possibility that you know there was you know in this great interconnected slightly slippery indefinable mesh of 
you know, historic and existing and, com and current and future meanings. You know, there is actually a place for us. We just have to be slightly less arrogant about it. Yeah, I liked I liked the way you said it. Of like, you're you're not there, kind of as as an outside grounded observer on reality, but you're there in the mess, and 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 you're sort of floating in it. And, and in a sense, you know, it ought to be it ought to be obvious, really, because you know that's that's pretty much the the insight of a lot of contemporary theoretical physics. I mean, I'm not I'm not a great I'm not hugely up on theoretical physics, but it's my understanding that you know the the these you know it's 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 not considered possible to separate the observer from what's being observed, even in the hardest of hard sciences. Yeah, I, I mean, it's specifically in in quantum mechanics, if you have like an entangled system, or or you have sort of a system in superposition, and then you try to observe kind of the inside of that superposition, you end up entangled with that system uh, in, in a quantum mechanical sense. And and so then the observer actually gets kind of, um, or, or one interpretation is the observer gets sucked into the, into the entanglement and therefore only sees part of it. Or another interpretation is that the, the act of observation itself collapses uh, the superposition. You know, which works as a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about. Right. This idea of like, you're no longer kind of standing on solid ground, you're kind of floating in this intersubjective matrix of power relations and concepts and, and stuff that's all kind of very hard to ground. It's it's like be, sort of being thrown into the water for the first time, right? I, that's that's kind of how I'm imagining it. And, and at first you feel like this is cr totally crazy. Like I'm not standing on ground, you know, you panic. Uh, you feel like you're drowning. And, and then at, at some point, I guess you learn to swim. Well, that that's the hope. But where where I see this this sort of you know mass kind of outbreak of psychic distress, in particularly it seems to be elite colleges like the more the more expensive yeah. and rarefied the college the more the more extreme this 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 stuff is. Um, I mean it's I mean I I argued I argued in the essay I wrote for you that what's what gets what gets taken as postmodernism in that context is not in fact postmodernism in the sense you and I have just been discussing of right. being you know a sort of an, an effort to to learn to to learn to swim in the current but right. but it's a kind of last ditch um it, it's a last ditch defensive maneuver by the rational disengaged subject um who you know having having discovered he can't ha he, and he or she can't have objective meaning is just engaged in this sort of all-out war on meaning itself on the right. basis on the basis that every every meaning requires definition and any definition you know by definition it re you know, depends on excluding whatever it isn't and the moment you and, and so if you make inclusivity the end goal of all of your politics if in effect you're you're waging war on meaning because you cannot have total inclusivity without having no meaning. Right. And and if you if you do attempt to kind of like construct any shared meaning, then then that's sort of inherently an act of power. And that's something you have to either either come to terms with or, or yeah, take this take this very uh, this very destructive approach in much, to it. In much the same way as you're forming any political movement, um, you know, requires defining an in-group for whom the political movement is acting and aiming to speak. So, you know, if, if the aim of your political movement is total inclusivity, then it will lose any ability, any political agency. I mean, I think I think something interesting is like that along those lines is taking place in the LGBT movement at the moment. There, mm -hmm. was, a, there was a kerfuffle fairly recently when Ariel Scarcella, who's a who's a well-known YouTube lesbian YouTube vlogger, um, posted a video where she, she basically said that that's it. I'm coming. This is my coming out video. I'm leaving the left. I'm done. I, I, I can't I can't be part of this anymore. 
And essentially what she was saying was um, this, this movement has become so inclusive that actually it's just inviting in a whole bunch of people who, who whose political interests are not sufficiently aligned in to, to make, to make any sort of meaningful, um, to make any sort of meaningful political program. And I mean, you know, again, I don't want to get bogged down in the, uh, the specifics of any one identity group, but you know, this is, this is a phenomenon which is which you could which you could argue plays out in any number of different spheres. Um, you know, the the moment the mo- the moment you start to feel that you you start to worry about the act, the effect of definition on as an act of power, and you start feeling like the the act of power involved in definition is in a sense is is suspect, just politically suspect by definition, then. Uh, you're, you're you're just into a whole world of craziness and politics becomes impossible. Yeah. Well, this this sort of all reminds me of something that Nietzsche said in Beyond Good and Evil, you know, late 19th century. He sort of, I think he kind of saw a bunch of this stuff coming. And he said, there's an inherent cruelty in the act of thought itself. I mean, Nietzsche obviously phrases everything in this very provocative way to, to really sort of shock you and, and, uh, and kind of traumatize you a little bit with this stuff that he's trying to teach you. But but there's something there, which is that, like, like to to impose a truth even on your own mind is is itself kind of this quasi violent act if you're willing to see it that way, and like in that it's it's blowing up a bunch of your preconceptions, a bunch of comfortable touch points, and so on, and it, it's this act of power and sort of like you're you're marching into part of your mind with an army of of truth and and kind of like imposing a new order, and that's it's sort of. Uh, you know, you extend that concept out to tr- sort of trying to convince anyone of anything or trying to organize every- anyone to do anything or-, or reach any kind of shared meaning structure. And and yeah, you, you get this sense that that there is this, uh, th- there's an aggression to it. And-, and I guess what Nietzsche was trying to get at was like, look, you need to get, you need to come to terms with this. He's putting it sort of in the most shocking possible terms to, to almost desensitize you and not not desensitize, but but like force you to to deal with it. And and to look at that and say, hey, look, the, yes, there's there's power here. There is there is even cruelty here, and maybe like it's still possible to to construct meaning or like this this is sort of the ideal takeaway from that is that like y- you come to terms with those things, you learn to use them responsibly, and you learn to not be traumatized and not regard them as always problematic, but, but problematic in some circumstances and not others. That's, that's my sincere hope now. I mean, when I, when I look around at, you know, what's, what's coming through politically or what's, what's viewed as sort of a radical stance to take politically now, um, that's, that's, to be honest, not so much what I see. Or rather, you know, what, what, what I see is, is indeed, um, you know, a series of bids for power. Um, but they're cloaked in, in a, in a sense, they, they're using they're using this sort of war on meaning, um, the kind of Trojan right. horse of inclusivity, um, as a as a stalking horse, as a kind of blind for you know what 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 is in effect the installation of a new bureaucracy, whose whose aim is to kind of uh, sort of adjudicate the to- a sort of total semiotic free for all of individuals who are so atomized that in fact you know no no shared structures of meaning are even possible anymore. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I kind of I follow that to its logical conclusion, which is not one I hope we ever reach. Um, but it's a, it's a sort of it's a kind of nightmare nightmare vision of a kind of total state. Uh, you know, exercising exercising uh, 
overwhelming control over a sort of in, intrusive control over a, a society of totally atomized individuals who don't feel like they have any any right to have any individual purchase on one another or any kind of interpersonal or intersubjective um, relational bonds with one another at all. Everything is sort of mediated through this kind of total state. And to me, that that's the kind of logical endpoint of liberalism, unmediated by any of the sort of Burkean traditions, any 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 of any of the intercept intersubjective dimensions of meaning. You know that that for the most yeah. part for human societies reside in things like tradition. So I suppose the point where I the point I've reached um, reluctantly because I really was a radical leftist in my twenties. I mean the, the the point I've reached today is a kind of grudging recognition that the the traditions that we have, in as much as they still exist, um, are probably a better idea. <laughs> are probably worth right. hanging on to. You know, I, I'd, call, I'd call myself a very reluctant conservative, but in as much as I've, I've, I've come to appreciate the value and the importance of tradition, you know, in the Burkean sense, as a bulwark against um, a sort of total disintegration and atomization of him, the human mm-hmm. subject. You know, I, I suppose, I suppose that is where I've ended up. Yeah, and that that act is almost. I, I mean, it's in a way like standing in the shallows of of the ocean like you you sort of got some feet on the ground you're 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 familiar with the water you've come to be familiar with the water but now you've found something to stand on where you need it where where you haven't quite learned to swim i i find actually a lot of hope in some of the conversations i see around this stuff still very obscure but i see very intelligent people working on taking the the sort of postmodernist post-structuralist stuff for granted and then trying to produce that re-socialized shared meaning structure and and really produce really well-grounded philosophical theory that that allows us to recover that stuff without it being just sort of that act of standing in the shallows without it just being like oh well we need this tradition stuff but rather reground the the wisdom of tradition in this intersubjective inherently perspectival world that that's where you're talking about the difference between a living tradition and a dead one yes in a sense one which is one which is suffused with it doesn't have to be a rational intellectual grasp of what the tradition is for it but it there are plenty of other levels on which you can understand things um you know you but the the difference between a living and a dead tradition is one you know is is exactly that it's this sense that um, you know, a, a dead tradition is just people going through the motions, and they're not really sure why. Um, and a living one, pe- people people know, even if it's just at the emotional level, what it's for. Yeah, and and I think I think like let's not be too hard on on dead traditions, so to speak, is because like it, there is a lot of value in like even if you know this thing is not really grounded, you know, kind of that it works. The other thing to remember, of course, is that you know if you if you repeat a dead tradition enough times, if if enough people keep turning up to perform a dead tradition, it will kind of come back to life again. It might not come back quite the way you expected it to, but it will it will yeah. be a thing anyway. And it's, it won't come back the way it was. And if if there's been like some intervening change in your philosophical paradigm, yeah, it, it's it's going to be quite different. Um, and and I think that's what we're dealing with right here is we we've got this this change in our philosophical paradigm of our whole society, and and you know you can sort of hobble along with with a lot of the stuff we had from before the change, but at some point to to really work out a lot of that stuff needs to be regrounded in 
in in the new meaning structure and the new ways we construct meaning structures, which means people need to be figuring those out. Anyway, so I, I'm very heartened actually in 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 seeing people working on that stuff. I'd be interested to hear any any references, any directions you can point me in, because like like you, I'm very interested in people who've embraced and found their bearings and, and are thinking beyond the the death of meaning towards how, how we how we go about um, reorienting ourselves because because meaning never died it never went away it, it just it just became apparent that actually it's kind of more alive than we thought yeah or yeah it's it's like it's not it's not as objective and and out there as we thought it's something more in here and and yeah something we interact with in a much more living way so i'm so that's uh, so i share your interest in that yeah so i'll, I'll give you some references then i mean and and for the audience as well, some of the things. Now, I'm I'm not deeply engaged in these conversations. I I just sort of like occasionally talk to someone from one of these crowds, and I'm like, okay, good, someone's working on this, and they seem to be making progress. And then I take I take my insights from you know whatever I learned from them. So I'm not I'm not engaging directly with sort of any academic conversation. But some of the things I've seen, like there's there's people. I think meta modernity is one term that I've th- seen thrown around from a bunch of different crowds that seem to be working on this. I've seen um, people working on what what people are calling the meaning crisis, um, which is sort of encompassing this whole this whole like civilizational event of of going through this this sort of perspectival transformation. Um, And and that's there's a bunch of people doing good work on the meaning crisis. Then there's something a little bit more obscure that I think um, is doing good work, though I, I can't I don't really agree with all of it but it's got some really great ideas is uh, generative anthropology. Um, and, and that one I'm not that familiar with, but I sort of know some of the basic ideas and, and their idea is sort of trying to like reground language and how we think about like intersubjective meaning in, in these sort of primordial acts of authority rather than you know like rather than trying to ground everything in like declarative statements of like x is true in this objective like outside of the intersubjective sense you ground things much more in in um some notion of shared authority and shared society and and I, i can't faithfully reproduce the thing but there's there's something there going on where people are working on this trying to reground reground kind of our 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 intersubjective meanings in in uh, in in some notion of primordial authority. Anyway, so th- those are a few of the threads that that I've seen kind of looking promising on on this whole uh, this whole transformation. Huh. Gen- generative anthropology sounds one sounds one I'd very much like to follow up on. I'm kind of yeah, I'll I'll send you some some links if I can find them. Yeah, I had an I, I had an art project that I ran for for about five years in my 20s which I call generative object oriented mythology right. <laughs> or goom for short which was basically it, it was it was me trying to theorize how you how you reinvest um meaning how you reinvest things with meaningfulness um so it, and, and it sounds like there are a lot of points of connection with between what I was what I was trying to investigate there with and what these generative anthropology guys are up to so I definitely need to look into that right and and so like I, I'm hopeful that we'll basically kind of solve this, right? That we will, as a society, learn to swim, so to speak. And and you know my kind of provisional answer that I rely on is like, yeah, that we we live in a society. Uh, we kind of inherently operate as small pieces within that society. We operate within the like conceptual 
and informational structures provided by society and and you know society very much constrains what kind of plans and meaning structures are possible for us um and that's fine right it's just like ground ground your kind of um ground your sort of feeling of identity not just in yourself and and the, the sovereignty of yourself but in in also your society and and the sovereignty of your society and just come to identify more with with like yeah we we are working together on this shared project of society what do we want to do with it what's our perspective right these are active questions that are subject to like construction we we construct the answer of what is our perspective what do we want to do and and i i sort of don't see a problem with that it's just something that needs to be kind of theorized and worked out of how do you actually do that and and how do you ground that given the existence of things like power structures and you know classes within society and and all these things that we deal with how are all the structures in our society kind of grounded in this notion of of a shared we and a and a shared kind of perspective that that is society and that that breaks sort of uh breaks down into this very very rich complex system of of sort of sub perspectives and and sub components and i i don't i don't obviously have the full answer but that's like i'm kind of gesturing towards the thing that i think this is going to look like when it's all said and done yeah i mean one of one of the things one of the things i find myself mulling over or well, i don't know if we'll live long enough to find the discover the answer to this but i mean it's 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 fairly obvious to me that um, the shape, the structure of a society will be determined to an extent by the kinds of stories it's able to tell about itself. Right. And, um, I mean, if you and if you if you'll accept that as a working hypothesis, I mean, you you look at the sort of you know the kind of generative mythologies of different different civilizations. You know, whether that's Romulus and Remus, or it's the the Christian mythos, or it's right. you know the sort of foundational founda- you know the sort of archetypal story of the founding of the United States. You know, there are these are kind of definitional stories which which create a, a shape or a sort of cultural frame within which a civilization, you know, at a basic level becomes possible. Um, and one of the things I find myself wondering about is to what extent, you know, the the sort of the globalized um, society, this highly complex, highly globalized society that we currently have, will continue to be possible if we. If if we take as given um, this new paradigm that we've been talking about, you know, to, to what extent is that still the right way to organise things? I don't know the answer to that, uh, but my yeah. hunch is my hunch is no. I think that I, my hunch is the answer is not. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't necessarily see these things bearing on each other too much. I think it's like the the paradigm that I think we're sort of throwing ourselves into here is is one that kind of will deal with uh, the systems of power that it's given in a way. Um, and, and so the question of like how, how globalized is society, well, that, that seems to me like basically a geopolitical and, and economic question of like, does anyone actually manage to kind of unify the, the economic structure and the political structure of, of the earth? Or, or is it, uh, you know, is it sort of inherently we're going to have multipolar world with many smaller entities? And and I guess, like, to, to your point, uh, to some extent, the current power structure of the world is based on this, like, objective kind of liberalism, you know, 
a, a, an international order, a, a rules-based international order, right, is a sort of a term that gets thrown around where the idea of rules is this sort of objective thing that's like adjudicated from nowhere, but but like orders all our power relations. And I think that that idea is going out the window with, with this new paradigm. And, and, and so I think that is going to, that particular basis of legitimacy for, for world power is, is going to break down. And, and, you know, perhaps this is related actually to the decline of America as a world power, right? America as a world power was really based in that global narrative of, rules-based international order that came out of the second world war and and sort of through the cold war and 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 after that um and you know as we lose confidence in anything like that ourselves and we sort of realize well actually this is just a big tool of imperialism and you know we've we've just kind of imposed uh this this particular unexamined perspective on the world we we sort of are, are losing the ability to maintain the structures of that thing um, and so I think that that's like this, this philosophical convulsion may be one of the driving factors in the decline that we see. Right. right? That's kind of, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah. And, and but it just like speaking, speaking sort of abstracted from the, the historical moment that that's what, like what I was saying earlier about, like, I don't see this necessarily bearing on it immediately is, is abstracted from the historical moment. I think it's certainly possible to construct a new narrative for for like a global hegemony uh, that that does sort of respect this new paradigm. I don't think it's going to become impossible. I think it's just possibly going to kill the current one. That that would be the way I would read it. Yeah, I think I think that's I would agree with that. You know, and but but it, I, I think we're we're some way off um, anybody coming up with. Um, how how you do how you do global hegemony hegemony in a postmodern fashion, I mean, or or perhaps they aren't. I mean, perhaps perhaps Xi Jinping is is in fact, perhaps China is in fact that, perhaps Donald Trump is in fact that. I mean, that's a that's a frankly alarming idea, but it's yeah. No, I don't think I don't think Trump is. I don't think Trump has has like you know deep deep sort of theoretical rigor behind what he's doing. The Chinese. I just think you need to have deep theoretical rigor um, in order in order to swim in the current. I mean, you know, my I, I'm sure. not I'm not deeply immersed in American politics, and I always feel it's a bit rude to comment on the politics of a nation that you're not actually in at the time. But from where I'm sitting, he looks like he's kind of making it up as he goes along a bit. Um, and yeah. that's that's kind of you know that that kind if it works as long as it works if it works then that's kind of that's kind of good enough from the from the point of view of a me- meanings which are in flux. Um, the the problem is when it when it doesn't really work. And you yeah, see- actually. So, okay, I, I think I see what you're saying. Then, like with with Trump, you have definitely this phenomenon of this guy does not believe in like the rules based international order. He does not believe in those stories we were telling ourselves about how liberalism worked, and therefore he's taking this like very pragmatic, like I'm just going to make good deals kind of approach to the thing, and. Um, you know, and, and and shooting from a hip, from the hip, in a way, and like you say, making it up as he goes along, and and that might be the the more that might be the correct thing to do in in this uh, this sort of like post postmodern environment. However, there's this whole other side of the thing, which is like as soon as you have to coordinate elites within some imperial structure, 
you need some notion of shared meaning, right? Like what are, why are we rowing together? What are we rowing together towards? What are we working on together? What is our shared perspective? And that, that is something that Donald Trump does not have. And that's, so that's what I'm getting at is like, it's, it's very difficult to coordinate uh, a system of elites without having some shared meaning structure that they actually believe in. And, and, and like Trump, Trump is like simultaneously postmodern and, and like, and, and, and modern, right? He's, he's, his power essentially relies, like to the extent that he has power, relies basically on a bunch of people's beliefs in, in the constitutional form as it exists, uh, which is like very much caught up in kind of liberalism and so on. But then at the same time, he's not, uh, he's not like operating within that mythological structure. And, and so that, that I think like kind of produces a lot of the, the conflict around Trump, right? He's unable to organize elites around himself because he doesn't have, um, this the, like a viable shared meaning structure for them, which leads to like the general kind of re- revolt of the rest of the elite against Trump and and like some general chaos in in that in that administration. And, and so that that's like, I guess, how I would analyze Trump in this in this lens. I, I don't want to like dwell too much on, on these electoral politics issues. I, I find the philosophical stuff much more interesting. But but as an example of the thing, um, that that's how I would call Trump. And then with respect to China, I think now I'm, you know, at Palladium, we do try to like actually delve into how the Chinese are thinking about things or specifically how the Chinese Communist Party is thinking about itself. Um, And as far as we can tell so far now, you know, we have not kind of delved enough to be definitive on this. But as far as I can tell, it looks to me like they are still grounding themselves very much in in this sort of objective scientific communism idea and and that means like and and communism is very much not um sort of postmodern in this way communism is is no it's a it's a variant of liberalism at least that's what john gray argues it's a yeah. slightly bizarre variant, but it's definitely a cousin. Communism is sort of, I mean, it's sort of just another name. Like and the other thing that Marx used, like the other thing that he called it was scientific socialism, right? It's this idea of there being an objective, scientifically verifiable path of development that societies would go through. And, and that like, you know, we're just kind of marching along this objective path. And and the Chinese, whenever they kind of change their structure, to change their their sort of path of development, they, they're framing it as this is a new discovery in the objective process of communism, or, or this is what the process of communism must necessarily look like for China. Um, and, and, and that's, that's still like a very modern way of thinking as opposed to a postmodern way of thinking. And I mean, you know, it, we, but I, I guess we'd be in danger of falling back into exactly the teleologies that we claim to have been liberated from, if we were to take it as read that inevitably um, the Chinese Communist Party and China as a continent is going to find itself embracing the paradigm that we're currently talking about. You know, I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's, there's any guarantee of that whatsoever. No, and yeah, there, there doesn't, they, they need not uh, make this update. Um, I think, I suspect that they will, because I think there is something you know, well, it's not this like objective teleological process necessarily. 
um, there there is a way in which you know going back to reality and nature um, a, a new a new philosophical structure that exploits sort of vulnerabilities in the old philosophical structure and, and will will tend to just uh, sweep away that old philosophical structure by default and at the same way just like uh you know a new species comes into existence in the ecosystem and and it it knows how to exploit the the previous um the previous organisms and and they don't have you know evolved defenses towards it um you you get this sort of invasive species effect and i think that that's that's kind of how i model what's happening with postmodernism is that they actually it actually does have these these very true insights to it, uh, or or you know true in the sense that they they like structure thought in a more useful way and in a way that makes our previous assumptions inelegant, and that means that I think that these sort of modern ways of thought will either have to be adapted or or they will be kind of replaced by by a more postmodern mode of thinking that that is more more self-aware about its inherent perspective. Um, and, and so I think that's the transformation we're going through in the West. I don't think China appears to be going through that. Um, and though I would suspect that at some point they're going to run into this. I guess time will tell. Um, it, it, you know, China doesn't really need me to, to try and um, right. <laughs> ad- adjudicate for them, for, 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 that, for them on that anyway. But I mean, where I, where I find this stuff interesting and potentially really exciting is that I think, and I have to do a lot more reading on this before I can argue it um, in depth. But my hunch is that um, the what, what, what you called what you called this update, and let, let's just call it that, the update um, mm-hmm. is kind of kind of like a new software download. Um, <laughs> um, so you know, get, get, but but that it enables us to to have an, have another look at the project of a politics of virtue. Um, yes, because the problem that we've had for some time now, you know, and this goes back to well, before, long, long before Derrida, you know, this this goes back to um, the nineteenth century, probably. The problem that we've had is um, Alistair MacIntyre writes about this in in After Virtue, the sense that yeah. um, we no longer we're no longer confident that there's anything substantial in which we can ground an idea of the good. You know, somehow, somehow yes. that, that idea that I, you know, that that we've we've lost we've lost any kind of an anchor point for our ideas of the good, and um, that and that that's a profound loss which took place some time ago. And most of the sort of you know intellectual and emotional convulsions of modernism and really postmodernism, all of which is kind of, is actually the same story, um, have followed from from that. Yes. Um, but I, I think you know this this new software download gives us the opportunity to address that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think it gives us an opportunity to construct uh, a grounding for for the good, and and sort of or find within ourselves the the drive towards the good. That, no, I don't think that, it needs. It doesn't. It doesn't just have to be grounded in an in an act of position or an act of power, because once you start once you start thinking of if once you think of postmodernism as an ethic of radical interconnection, you start to realize that your own systems of meaning are interconnected with wider systems of meaning, which are not even necessarily all human. 
You know, right. there are you know you can you can see weather patterns as systems of meaning. You know, the discipline of biosemiotics um, is is really about the the entire natural world as a meaning making system. You know, right. all, all the way down to the cellular level, and you, you, all the way even down to inorganic um, systems. You know, in a, you know, the the natural world doesn't doesn't think of information in the inert way that we're used to. Um, in, in right. Engaging. Yeah, it's all this. It's all this. Like in, it's all meaning. Interaction. It's interaction. Yeah. You know, meanings are all all always contextual, and they're all always um, relation in you know developed in relation to one another. Right, and, and so I guess I guess that would mean then grounding our sort of shared structures of meaning in our relation to the rest of the natural world in some way. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and and the, the, this, and it, you know, a very profound, and I, I would call it an aesthetic, you know, because it, it's not an intellectual experience. It's not even one which is very easy to verbalize, but an aesthetic experience of the of of the greater systems within which we exist and make make our own meanings. Yeah, yeah, no, I I certainly find that compelling, and I I've got ideas in that direction, but I I feel like. I think we're a long yeah, way yeah, from there, but I, but but my feeling yeah. is, you know, if we're if we're going to do something positive with this software download, it's in that direction. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that's the direction to be looking. Like, how do we how do we reground some notion of the good and and like our relation to the rest of the world in this sort of postmodern way where we're we're sort of we're right in it and and we're part of it. And if I was if we were to do anything constructive to help create a future in which that becomes possible i think it would be to recenter the idea of beauty in how we how we educate our children interesting you know, particularly you know in what you know at, at the level of beautiful illustrations for you know all the, for beautiful illustrations for toddlers all the way up to the environment you surround your children with all the way up to um, beautiful drawings in your kids books beautiful illustrations yeah. to go with your schoolwork there, there is something in us, which is innately capable of grasping beauty, um, and I yes. think this connects with Christopher. What's his name? Sorry, his, his name his name eludes me. But the guy who writes Christopher about Alexander. Uh, yeah, the guy who writes about pattern language in the built environment. Yeah, Christopher um, Alexander. Because I think you know, but I'm, and I would connect that. You know, again, I'm, I'm, this is this is all very kind of you know frontier stuff in my own patterns of thought. But right. I would connect that with with the work that Goethe did on metamorphosis, which is really about pattern language in the natural world. And mm -hmm. I think you know, if we can be if we can be thinking in terms of systems and pattern languages, and the the the, the ways in which those work, you know, across across the civilizational human and and also the natural worlds, and to an extent are in dialogue with one another, and the sense in which you know humans are able to grasp, you know, what what we perceive as beauty. Is really about a sort of you know us us being in right relation with those patterns. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Like beauty, there's there's something to beauty which is very much about like things being in right relation and and uh, and about expressing a truth. Like the most beautiful things I find, like when I sort of examine the concept of beauty and I go and look at which things are beautiful and which things aren't, it it's, it seems to me that the things that are beautiful are those that are in some sense getting at some truth not not necessarily like some declarative truth like x is true but but that it's there's some sort of system of right relations between things that has 
and and some discipline to reality that has produced this artifact right like a, like a human body at the height of its beauty it's it's this highly functional structure right it's it's built for running around on the savanna and and throwing spears and wrestling and and living and, and doing all this stuff and it's very much optimized to to uh, an incredible extent for that kind of stuff and and there's beauty coming out of that process because to to become optimized in that way it has to become true in some sense and in a, in a way that is beautiful it has to become beautiful to actually be able to do that stuff and the same thing you look at a, a large a large cat or something like a, a lion right a lion has the same sort of beauty it's this this beauty of optimization for its environment that it it produces this sort of sculpted form that's that's sleek and and capable and then or you look at the beauty of a tree and it's the same kind of thing right it's got this this form to it that that is kind of the the best form for the way it is living and and in having to discover that form it has had to become beautiful and then not just in living systems in in natural systems you look at like the the meandering bends of a river or something right there's beauty in that and it's it's in this form of of like just how the water relates to the ground around it and how the flow relates to things and how momentum works and and there's a truth being revealed in that structure and that's i think that's kind of like how i interpret beauty yeah uh, william othels i don't know if you've come across him as a writer uh, i haven't uh so you, you might find you might find his work interesting he writes about he writes about a future politics based on scarcity as we come out the other end of this kind of you know crazy crazy burning burning up of resources that we're currently in right um and he he talks very much about about a new politics um based on virtue um, which is grounded in an appreciation of our limits, and he talks about he talks a lot about the aesthetic, you know, the 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 impact of constraint and how how constraints are in fact what produces beauty. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've I've stated this before as uh, beauty lives in the limits of possibility. Exactly. You know, and that that's a that's a profoundly sort of systems based ecological perspective on what what beauty is. Um, or in a sense, a sort of aesthetic understanding of what an ecology is. You know that it, it kind of works in both directions, and I think I think that's that that's that that from that's my sort of hunch about where where we're heading in terms of an ethics which is appropriate to a more sort of postmodern systemic, um, you know, intersubjective understanding of you know what what we are and how meanings are made. Yeah, I completely agree that it's going to be something in that direction. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of looking forward, you know, both to contributing to that and, and seeing where it goes. Um, and, and so let's let's take that for granted. It's like, OK, there exists this this uh, very positive outcome to this thing. And 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 so we'll take it back, back to that college experience and back to the kind of original theorists of postmodernism. Why did they not? go there i guess i mean that that's maybe not a fair question it's it's they they kind of um you know again like everyone else just thrown into the water and and they had to figure out how to swim on their own but one or two of them i think actually did but because they okay. were women they mostly got ignored and you know yeah, I, don't, and, I don't normally the, do the, the identity hunch... politics thing but LNC, the, the french feminists those those uh -huh. LNC, Sue, Luce, Irigaray, and i forget the third but there were three. There were three French feminists who um, who, who wrote a great deal about um, essentially a sort of ethic of uh, merging merging with the with with 
wider systems of meaning, you know, as sort of a, an experience of jouissance. Uh, I mean, this is again, this is a, this is a bit an end of theory which I'm not very familiar with, but it's right. you know, to the best of my understanding, French feminism, um, rather than sort of retreating into this kind of semi-ocidal kind of fury, uh, you know, the, the kind of traumatized, you know destruction of meaning you know in in reaction to you know the decentering of the rational subject you know they 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 sort of went in the other direction towards the dissolution of the rational subject as a sort of as a kind of orgasmic um moment of moment of just wonder and you know reconnection with all of creation which is in, mm-hmm. in you know i mean it's it's it sounds a bit mental but it's it's kind of uh, it's it's an it's another take on what we've just been talking about right um, so, yeah, so I would say they didn't all, but but it's perhaps fairer to ask um, not why did why did none of them go there, but why did the ones who go there, who went there, not get listened to? Yeah, and and that's that's I think sort of the 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 damning thing happening here is that like I think the way we've ended up interpreting this and the way we've ended up using this is just as a as a, like a bludgeon in, in in culture wars, so to speak, and and it like the way that our postmodernism ended up getting constructed was as as a way to attack another faction of of humans within kind of this liberal structure right so you have this this kind of conflict between um you know a more a more elite faction um against kind of the the everyday normal people um and and you know that, that that conflict is very unfortunate that it exists, and and you know where it came from is complicated and historical. But you have this conflict in society, and and so you have, uh, I think I think our kind of elite systems of thought ended up picking up the theorists that were like just most sort of hostile to the social order around them, and 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 the social order that that the people kind of engaging in that stuff identified as their political enemies. And and that's where you get kind of, I think, the hostility to a lot of sort of traditional forms of life, the hostility to to like all of the groundings of our social fabric and everything. Um I, I like the way we ended up using this not not to like construct a shared beauty for society, but to to attack, to like undermine the other guy's kind of systems of of meaning after a few decades of you know the sort of liberal experiment in dismantling all social norms it's very clear that the people most well equipped to navigate that are uh, the other people who are better off to begin with it's it's very obvious that you know the 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 social norms and the social structures had a, had played a much more critical role for poorer people um, just as 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 a, as a yeah. form of as a form of social support, as a form of solidarity for all all kinds of reasons, then and, and people who have an existing store of cultural capital, you know, and, and who can afford to move house if it all goes wrong, you know, who can afford to buy in services to replace the family that's disintegrated around them, etc. and so on, you know, yeah. do, do very well under the new dispensation, but the people who actually relied on extended family and who really needed that stable marriage um, because they just they just didn't have very much else economically speaking you know they're really screwed now and you know that and that's how the fact that that's happened in parallel with you know and sort of re-narrating in a sort of triumphalist way you know this this kind of dismantling of 
uh, you know, a more a more sort of mutualistic um, economy in favour of something heavily financialized, you know, and, and right. in, engaged in kind of global, you know, race to the bottom tax competition. You know, it's it's no coincidence because they're they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it, in in both cases in both cases it's a it, it's a winner takes all kind of an ideology that's you know that frames itself as as liberation but you know the moment you start scraping away at whose whose liberation actually are we talking about and is 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 liberation as much fun for everybody all the way down the food chain um you start right, running right. into some quite difficult questions so yeah although, and know, i think you know, so, i so think in, basically in that sense, i'm still a ra- i'm still a rabid lefty even if I'm, in some cultural senses i'm i've, I've perhaps asked <laughs> questions of that right well i think one of the things that's actually going out the window with this stuff as as people really start to try to grapple with it is is a lot of the like right left distinction itself is is going out the window the, the the vantage point from which you and i are looking at all of this stuff is you know it's sort of coalescing roughly around post-liberal i guess you know, and that's yeah, and I mean, as much as it, I have a designation, that's probably the one I'm most comfortable with. Yeah, and and I mean, what that will come to mean, who knows? And and like whether that will still represent the way we see things. I mean, it's very difficult to label these things, but but I I am comfortable kind of throwing out the the sort of right left distinction because it it seems to be an artifact of of just the structural conflicts within the kind of modernist political structures that we had. Um, and, and then, you know, those, those structural conflicts, I think, are what is producing the, the toxicity of the way we've handled postmodernism. It's like we, we've had, we sort of, the, our first instinct with postmodernism was like, how do we weaponize this against the social structures of our political enemies, rather than, you know, how do we construct shared meaning? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm, you know, I look, at, I look at the sort of the internet, the kind of running internet guerrilla war. Um, between between the social justice left and the alt right, um, which is not something you know. I mean, that's generally a rabbit hole I try and avoid going down because I yeah, absolutely. That that's just life is too short. But you know, my my sense of it is that you know, there's you know within within the groups who are engaged in that conflict, there's very little discussion of of how class inflected it is. Right. Um, I mean, it's the the social justice left. I, I I'm. I think if you throw if if you throw a wet fish into a crowd of the social justice left, socioeconomically they would be almost guaranteed to be much from a much higher class than the alt right. Yeah, and I, and I think you know we had this article from Natalia Deshan about that um, or about part of that, which is the our article on Yale and the Yale Yale campus politics called. Um, the real me- the real problem at Yale is not free speech, and and that one, you know, examined this thesis that a lot of the a lot of the reason people are kind of like wholeheartedly throwing themselves into this new paradigm or, or this weaponized version of this new paradigm is that it allows them to kind of like absolve themselves of their power in society, like they they are in fact from the classes that have large amounts of power and privilege. Um, and wealth in in our society, but but to throw yourself into this kind of deconstructed deconstructive project that you've you know you've called semiocide um, allows them to kind of feel feel that they're doing the right thing despite despite that privilege. Which I mean, ironically, that that privilege has itself kind of been pathologized uh, by this perspective. It's like okay, it, it says like your power in society is bad power is bad to make up for this you have to go and 
destroy systems of power. And and it allows it, it kind of it comes from having lost any confidence in any shared meaning structure that could be the basis for an elite, right? And and if you if you don't have any confidence in being an elite and leading society along some trajectory, then you know, you kind of don't want to be in that position anymore, especially when your philosophy kind of pathologizes the idea of power. And and so, yeah, there, there's definitely a sense in which like the people who sort of are, are leaping into this, you know, a lot of the time they are, they are actually legitimately marginalized people, but, but a lot of the time as well, it's, it's these um, very privileged kids who, who kind of are, are struggling with the guilt of that given given that their kind of philosophical structure doesn't have any positive expression of of privilege so i mean i the the you guys around palladium are a bit more recently out of college university than me i mean do you right. have a do you have a sense of um anything more um positive coming through than this this kind of process of mutual self destruction i i think i mean my own experience with college has been, you know, that was 10 years ago now. Um, I went to a sort of what I call affectionately a backwater technical college where we focused on practical things like engineering. And I got a very good education there. But, you know, they, they would occasionally be kind of attempts at giving us a humanities education often in this postmodern paradigm, but but given the kind of very practical and and like objective grounding of engineering, it 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 just didn't take with us. And and we so so I don't have much experience directly with the campus environment stuff. Um, that said, we're we're situated here in Berkeley, um, partially to engage with the students at Berkeley, which we have been doing, there's some very smart students at Berkeley who have been uh, engaging with us and, and with sort of new paradigms. And, you know, we see a lot of this stuff just, just in like a more, a more advanced, uh, unfortunately, uh, sort of mode of expression than it sounds like you saw, like with you, it was sort of like, Oh, you individually. And, and like, you know, you're struggling with, with these, systems of power and so on. Nowadays, it, it seems like it's kind of still in that mode, just just wider spread. Uh, it, like, you know, whereas whereas I was sitting there in a group of friends, all of whom seemed capable of speaking to one another as though their words were actually um, capable of crossing the gap between people without just becoming copelessly garbled. Everybody, everybody else seemed to be basically fine, apart from me. and And I was just, you know lost in this this web of uh constant mutual micro i mean what 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 now gets called and theorized as microaggressions you know i i, I experienced the whole time when i was in that st- in that state of mind yeah um you know the, the this sense that you know almost almost everything was in some sense an, an encroachment on my psychic space in some way you know that yeah and i have i have a lot of sympathy with what that what that's like it's really unpleasant you know, I, I yeah. feel immense compassion for anybody who's going through, through that. But I also feel incredibly worried about the future of a society in which that's not just widespread but accepted and is becoming the basis of a new politics for the elite. Yeah, well, I think I think like it's kind of 
self-destructive as a as a basis for politics and and that's sort of good and bad and you know the bad side is obvious it means that our elite is going to self-destruct and self-destruct our society along with them um but that's where palladium goes full accelerationist on me the the good the good is that it's not going to be around for very long. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you guys have gone full accelerationist. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not at all. I, you know, I, I want, I want this thing to get resolved properly. But, but, uh, you know, and in, in a not, not let's blow this all up. But, but I'm just saying that, like the, the thing is, the thing is definitely accelerating, and, uh, you know. To, to use a little bit of religious language, God always wins in the end. I mean, I have I have some hope for Generation Z, Generation Z, I guess, your Zoomers. I have, yeah. I have some hope. I think a bunch of them are a lot more... I mean, so they're really screwed up in some ways, a lot of them. Um, I think the bulk of them are really screwed up. But but some of some of them as well, are, you know, there's there's really really interesting perspectives coming through, and I think you know these these are these are kids who've grown up never having not known the internet. I mean, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I've got a foot in the old world in that sense. You know, I can, I, I got my first email address at college. Um, you know, I, yeah, I can right. remember, I can remember not, not having a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these, these kids got their first pay, Facebook page before they were born. <laughs> like <laughs> That's, that's got to, that's got to give you a different outlook on pretty much everything. So, so, yeah. sort of, so, so I think, I think it will be interesting to see what comes through because they're not like the millennials. Yeah, and and I think it's like again to come back to the question of hope. Um, the thing that I am seeing that's maybe more hopeful. It's not like oh yeah, everyone's just kind of working their way through it. It's it's that a few people are working their way through it. You see these Zoomers who are um, in in a sort of they've grown up in this environment, this this sort of postmodern post-meaning environment is really like kind of post-apocalyptic um and and they've decided that that's not for them and that they're going to latch on to sort of alternative systems of meaning from that um and you know some of that takes like kind of the more alt-right expressions which is unfortunate because i i think as you critiqued that's like not that that's still not actually through the fire in a way but but I think I, I've, I've had a look at the uh, what I, for, I forget what it Bronze Age mindset. I've, I've, I've uh-huh. not, I, 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 I confess I've not read all all through it yet. I have to do it in small doses. But what's what's really struck me so far is the kind of uh, is is how much it reminds me of Naked Lunch. Have you ever read Which, Naked Lunch? I no, I'm not familiar. Um, no, it's, a, it's an American William Burroughs. He was a he was a heroin addict in the in the mid 20th century, and he he wrote using a cut up technique, which is to say he he wrote 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 a bunch of stuff down and then cut it up and glued it all back together again in different forms, <laughs> and that was his text. Um, and he he wow. just wrote this kind of crazy sort of impasto um, collage effect, um, very, very poetic, very insane. It was, it, it's sort of a, a pretty accurate representation of being completely out of your box. Um, just completely smashed on whatever. Right. Um, but you know, very, very sensuous, very erotic, very, um, very, very vitalistic in the way that Bronze Age pervert is very vitalistic. Um, I mean, I think, I think he's a, he, he has a lot of cultural influence, that guy, and, and, you know, should be taken seriously as a writer. I need to delve further mm-hmm. into his book. But what's, what I find, what I found really striking is it's, it, it feels, it feels also oddly nihilistic and oddly insubstantial in a way which I don't associate. Um, you know, he gets called a conservative. I don't think he's a conservative. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lump those people in with conservatives. I, the, the, what I'm seeing, like a lot of that, you know, and, and the, the broader kind of alt-right is, is like, 
they're they're experimenting with things and they're playing with things that you know like you say kind of nihilistic uh but but they're a reaction to this kind of post-apocalyptic postmodernism that that unfortunately has ended up expressed at at our universities and so on and they haven't necessarily come up with the new the new kind of resolution to this thing yet uh you know as we were discussing earlier with like how do we resolve this in terms of like our ecological and social interconnections um you know i I, i'm not seeing stuff like that it's still sort of in this irony and reaction and, and rebellion phase but but i see the people engaging with you know, some of that stuff and, and some other stuff, you know, some of the other things I was mentioning, like the, the meaning crisis people, the metamodern people, the generative anthropology people. I see the people, the kids, the smart kids who are engaging with this stuff are engaging with it in a healthy way. I, that's what I would say. I, I, I am seeing people engaging with this stuff in a healthy way and and looking for healthy expressions that are also like philosophically well put together and advanced. And, and, you know, I think, I think a large fraction of those people end up like sort of spiraling off into various sidetracks, um, you know, whether religious or like nihilistically political or, or whatever um, that, or things that I think are sidetracks, perhaps some of them obviously will have different interpretations, but I, I do see a lot of people sort of like grappling with this stuff and exploring it in a healthy way. And, and that kind of, again, is giving what's giving me hope. And I I see them discovering the things that look like where the intellectual activity is that's actually going to resolve this whole meaning crisis for us. Um, So just to your question about like what hope there is, uh, that's where I'm seeing That's really encouraging to hear. I mean, I'm I'm kind of, I live in a small town in England these days and I don't, you know, I'm in in contact with people via my work as a writer, but, you know, I I don't, I don't, I'm like 20 miles from Cambridge. So, you know, within hailing distance of a university town, but not in regular contact with, you know, young people who are starting to think politically today. So it's really encouraging to hear um, from, from you guys and your work uh, in Berkeley that that's actually, that, you know, there there are some glimmers of hope and that there are some, there are some Zoomers who are coming through who aren't just, uh, you know, hell bent on semiocide. Yeah, no, I and I, you know, not not to like be inaccurate about the bulk of the thing. Uh, I I don't even see that that like the majority of them are sort of bent on semiocide. It's more like there's a small minority that are sort of very vocal in that orientation, and everyone else has to kind of take them seriously because they haven't discovered an alternative to it. Exactly. Um. And and then you do have again another small minority that's that's not vocal but there and and very very energetic, uh, kind of doing these explorations, looking for that alternative. And and you know I don't know how long this stuff is going to take. Um, one of the reasons we started Palladium really was actually to throw up a banner that that people could discover that that and 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 rally around in a way of of like you know, we're, we're trying to construct a positive vision of the future here, right? This is what we're doing with governance futurism project is like, let's look at this problem of governance of our society and look at its future and, and really grapple with it through these very philosophical problems and these structural problems that we're going through and try to understand what comes out the other side. And, and so, you know, we're, we're sort of disproportionately in contact with the people who are trying to find positive ways through this thing, just because that's, that's the banner we're throwing up, but I can assure you that they do exist. Good. So, I mean, do you do you feel optimistic that there is there is a there is a future 
full stop for the governance either of your, your nation or mine. You know, there are, I mean, there, are, there are times when I look around and I think, you know, the, you know, if we if we end up at Bali with technology, as William Offels put it, we'll be very lucky because <laughs> the 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 less optimistic possibility is one one set out by Paul Kingsnorth and my old creative collaborator Dougal Tyne at the Dark Mountain Project. Um, who who take the view that actually we're, we're all basically screwed and and any of any of us any of us who want to retain any knowledge whatsoever ought to start building monast- monasteries or whatever the contemporary equivalent of it is right now. You know, perhaps some people should be building monasteries. I think even in healthy times, people should be building monasteries, just you know, as as kind of risk mitigation and so on. But but I I, I very much like. I dislike the the kind of very black outlook on things where, you know, everything's screwed. We all just need to retreat to the, you know, some flyover place and, and like hole up for and, and let the thing play out, which is going to be a collapse. That's a very American take anyway, because if you live on a small island, that's not physically possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but but of course, in the English in the English case, it's let's retreat to the countryside and, and just like live well uh, while the thing blows up. Um, but... I, I, I dislike that approach to things and I've I, I always find myself frustrated with it because it's just so unconstructive. Um like I, I, I do see hope not necessarily in any kind of return to normalcy, uh to, so to speak. Like I I don't think it's going to go back to the nineteen nineties, like uh or or any any sort of approximation of that. It you know, maybe even our countries, you know, I, as as sort of a Canadian American here, and and you as a as an Englishwoman, it's like it, these the, our Anglosphere may look very very different by the time we're through all of this. But I think there is hope in kind of reconstructing a positive social and moral and and spiritual order for our society. And and I again, so I get frustrated with people who are just like, oh, it's hopeless. Um, for me, it's like, I see, I see threads to be pulling on here that like, even if the thing totally collapses into the ground and completely crashes, someone still has to do this work to get us back out of that. So it's going to have to happen eventually. And, and so we might as well just work on this, right? We might as well work on this project of governance futurism and, and the philosophical angles of that, um, and the social angles and the lifestyle and so on. We have to figure out what does a positive life look like coming out of this situation we're in. There is, there isn't really an, there, there isn't really an option B. I don't, as far as I can see. Yeah, I mean, you, you either go through it or you avoid the question, and and so I, I kind of get annoyed by the people who choose to avoid the question. But, um, but you know, that's their thing. Um, but yeah, it's I, I do see hope just because. Like, I think something is going to come out of this. We're not going to cease to exist. We're not, you know, like you were saying about being annihilated. I think we're going to be annihilated conceptually. I don't think we're going to be annihilated physically, um, at least if we don't choose to. Unfortunately, I think many people are sort of choosing approximately that. But, um, you know, you see these opioid crises and and a lot of the, the way we treat each other ends up being physically destructive but but i don't think we're just going to be physically destroyed i think we're going to have kind of a philosophical fire that we have to pass through and a structural and political fire that we have to pass through and and i see sort of no other way than just 
trying to figure out what comes next positively and constructively. Yeah, I'm with you on that. There isn't really a, there isn't really an alternative because we've reached the end of the road with the old paradigm. So the the pro, the project of reconstruction is kind of obligatory. Right, and and reconstruction within this paradigm that we're talking about is I think you do have to take this post-structuralist stuff seriously. It has to be like consciously perspectival, consciously interconnected with all the systems of interaction that we exist in, uh, you know, systems of power, systems of ecology, uh, social systems, etc. And and we have to find ways to build an order within those systems of interconnection that we can believe in. If there's any potential, for example, for a revival of uh, new spiritual movements, they will be in the context of the new paradigm. Um, I'm, I'm very it, curious. I'm mean, there's something I'm completely completely ignorant on for example is whether or not whether or not any thinkers within the great religious traditions are engaging with postmodernism or trying or think trying to think spiritually think trying to think theologically within within a postmodern sort of a mindset I'd be very very curious to hear of anybody who's Who's yeah, on those I mean, I I would as well. I I mean, I've I've said before that like Christianity certainly needs to grapple with this stuff, and I don't think it has yet. Not not uh, to my knowledge, but if I I'd love to be corrected on that. Yeah, exactly. And then Islam is another one that I I see having enough life to attempt to engage with it. Um, Buddhism, I I don't understand a thing about Buddhism. Uh, you know, I meet I you know here in California, you do meet Buddhists. Um, especially like sort of California style Buddhists. And, and they are actually grappling with this very, very actively. Um, but I don't understand enough about what they're doing or how they like how their system works to, to really comment too much on that. Um, yeah. And again, Islam, I see, you know, I, it, funny enough, some of these smart kids that we that we meet who are who believe in the future and, and want to work on these projects are, are Muslim kids. And and so that that's that's been interesting. Um but yeah, so there's that. Then what else do we have in terms of spiritual movements uh, that are grappling with this? I, I maybe I'm not. Yeah, I'm not too aware of much else um, in terms of people really trying to grapple with this thing. But I, I would expect that um, people do figure out ways to to sort of reground their traditions in in a, a more perspectival thing. But it's gonna it's going to take philosophical greatness, I think, to to, to pull it off. But, you know, to, to pull off anything uh, on this level, you know, inside or outside of any particular tradition, it's going to take philosophical greatness. So, uh, you know, we all look forward to seeing that turn out. Uh, for, my own, for my own sort of spiritual perspective, I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it you know, I, I've definitely been grappling with this stuff. And um, I, I feel comfortable with, with kind of uh, the philosophical future, but... Um, Learning, learning to express that and share it with other people is is uh, that's the part that requires the greatness. <laughs> yeah, I think the I'm, I'm I'm very interested in in the place of ritual, um, particularly rituals with a very long tradition of their own. You know, for you know the the religious sacraments of you know it doesn't have to be any any one particular faith. I mean, my 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 familiarity is is with the Christian faith, but you know there are there are time-honoured uh, religious rituals in in any number of different faiths and how and I, I suppose I'm interested in how how those that that sort of that heritage and that tradition interacts with you know the 
the sense of meaning being slippery and the how 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 people how people of faith come to terms with the idea that the divine is present but in a sense we're also um we're also in that dialogue it's not a one-way thing yeah does that make sense yeah and I mean, ritual is certainly important, especially ritual with heritage. And then I guess, again, the question is just how do you ground what you're doing? Uh, why Why do you believe? Like rituals work best when you sort of believe in, in what's happening there. There's some... Um, if, you, if, you, if you guys are thinking about this at all, I'd love to hear your take. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it really... Okay, so, you know, in my... I, I have a number of conversations ongoing on this side of the pond, you know, on various sort of post-liberal subjects. And, you know, my my post-liberal friends and colleagues, you know, span both people of faith and also non-believers. Right. And one of the thorniest problems and the areas where people really tread most carefully is around the question of grounding... Uh, grounding a sense of morality in in a particular faith the the, the sort of post liberal conversation attracts a lot of catholics which is perhaps unsurprising when you when you think that catholic social teaching is one of the few vantage points that has persisted within western civilization from right. which it's possible to critique liberalism with any sort of coherence yeah but so as a result there's there's, there's a whole bunch of catholics they're heavily represented in post liberal in post liberal conversations in the uk and and my sense is, you know, to a degree, on your side of the pond as well, you know, people yeah, like integralists absolutely, like absolutely. Adrian Vermeule. Yeah, uh, is he Harvard? Um, yeah, Vermeule is at Harvard, and then there's a, f- a few other factions of of uh, right, and there's, there's American Affairs, which is kind of kind of conservative, but also kind of post liberal, and you know, there's there's you guys have got. Uh, but anyway, the the, prob- the question that preoccupies me is, you know, how can we find um, a way of grounding? Um, Re, if you like, regrounding political authority in some shared conception of the good that has room for people of faith, but also non-believers. And is it is that yeah. possible? I mean, you know, is 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 it possible to have some kind? You know, is an ecumenical integralism even possible? And the answer to that might just be no. But it's a question that keeps my take on that is: I think one of the things that this postmodern transition is going to force us to come to terms with is. It's going to force a certain level of honesty about how these imperial spiritual orders actually work. And liberalism has done this for some time that they, you know, they they do operate as a, a sort of imperial spiritual order. And they reinterpret, they forcefully reinterpret the religious systems that exist within their realm. And, and they they chop the pieces off of them that are not compatible with liberalism and they graft on new stuff that makes it more compatible with liberalism as a, as sort of a a conception of life. And so, you know, religions that, that have been within the liberal sphere for a long time or, or were sort of um, even influential on the founding of liberalism, like, like American Protestantism and English sort of just the English streams of Protestantism, uh, those, those are like almost indistinguishable from liberalism these days with a bit of a theolo- theological veneer. Um, are, I, I shouldn't be unfair, but many, many uh, of the denominations, I would say. Um, there are, of course, other things going on. Catholicism, at least in its mainstream uh, existence, likewise, um, very much has been terraformed by liberalism uh, you do have your reactive elements within Catholicism. They are rather small. 
um, within within the Western world. Um, though I, I think like the in the younger generations, much more currency than than in the older generations, just because the, the younger generations that have actually stuck with the thing are, are much more consciously uh, post-liberal. And then Islam as well. Islam is sort of very new to this process, new to being within the within the purview of liberalism, but is certainly being kind of reformulated by liberalism into um just a mere cult within liberalism and, and, and they're sort of struggling with that and what that means for them. Um, and I think this thing, like a lot of people are reacting against that process as opposed to the particular content of liberalism. And, uh, the thing that I think we're going to be forced to deal with as a result of this postmodern honesty, which is really an honesty, um, is is that that's just how it works in a way that when you have an empire and that empire has a conception of what the good is for itself um it will within its borders take other conceptual structures and other narrative structures and incorporate them into its own structure and like sort of chop off the pieces that it doesn't like and and add on pieces that it does like and and they become these these functional specializations within a within a spiritual order rather than, you know, actually just uh, truly unmolested foreign cultures. So in, in summary, so no, an ecumenical integralism is not possible. We just have to wait it, for the new the, hegemon to emerge and, you know, and, and pick and mix yeah, and stuff but to suit itself. I, I, I mean, I, I, I say that not cynically, but that, that's, that's what I understand from what you just said. That's Yeah, but I, I would hedge that. I would hedge that. It's like, yes, I, I don't think I... I, I I don't think like a real ecumenicalism is possible is, is what I'm saying here is like, like in, in the, like the way that liberalism has taught us to expect liberalism has taught us to expect that like, Oh yeah, there's this, just this objective shared political structure that allows us to all have our own religions. And, you know, we all exist within this order, but we're all having our own religions. And I think that's a lot. That it's bullshit because the, the moment, at the moment, a religion, a tenet of a religion becomes political, then it gets, it gets extracted from religion and placed into the domain of politics. Yeah. Which, which is the domain of liberalism. And right. So I, I think the answer is like, no, theoretically it's not possible. The idea that it was possible is like one of the lies of, of modernist, modernism and liberalism however i think there are like more and less totalitarian kind of empirical spiritual orders um and and the more totalitarian ones could you could imagine this like very iconoclastic uh very aggressively terraforming version of i i mean islam has been like this in the past protestant christianity was like this at certain times in europe catholicism uh, was a little bit less like this, a little bit more incorporative of the the older paganisms, uh, but still quite aggressive in in rooting them out when it didn't like them. But you can imagine, I I sort of hold out hope for something that is, I mean, if I can speak with total uh, absurdity in a way, but I actually don't believe this is absurd, like an imperialist Unitarianism, um, where unitarianism regards all these religions as valid forms of worship right it's like okay look we do have this shared conception of god and meaning structure and so on and we sort of share that as as human society um and we all have our own traditions of that but we can see the validity in each other's traditions 
and we don't have to like get caught up in the in the the differences so to speak and just kind of learn from each other but again this this is itself something that is going to chop pieces off of religions and and graft on pieces it's it's going to chop off more like sectarian aspects and and graft on more ecumenical aspects um but I, I do think that sort of thing is possible. I do think it's possible to have like an imperialist Unitarianism. Um, but what that ends up looking like and where it comes from, who knows? Um, and that, but that's just like a theoretical possibility at this point, right? It, that's just something that I'm kind of raising as a, as sort of a, a pedantic, like here's, here's how it could go that I think would be like minimally traumatic. Um, yeah. I mean, your, your colleague, Ash Milton, said in a, in a conversation we had a few weeks back that his, he thinks it's a good rule of thumb that, you know, whatever, whatever version of a political philosophy gets widely adopted at the, at the popular level is pretty much 100% guaranteed to be the absolute worst version of that philosophy. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I think, I, you know, we, we, may, we may be waiting in vain, but some will tell us. I, I'm, I'm perhaps not that pessimistic. I believe in the power of leadership to... Uh, teach people good things, but uh, you do need leadership structures to get that done. This this whole set of questions about how we're dealing with postmodernism, how it's going to affect our religious structures, our meaning structures, our social structures, there's a huge amount here. We could go on forever. Um, and and I think we've covered like a, a lot, a lot, much more than I, than I had hoped for, which is, which is great. Um, so I'm, I've been very happy with this so far. If there's anything sort of more any more questions you have to, to spark some discussion let's go for it otherwise um this would be a good place to wrap up no i'm good i think that's that that feels like uh, ecumenical integralism is pretty much pretty much the the out the, the outermost point of my um long distance run trains of thought right. at the moment so i'm happy to leave it there right okay well we've had a great conversation here mary thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure talking to you all right thank you very much All right. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. Um, We'll see you next time.